0: Hello, and welcome to That's Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I am your host, Susan O'Flynn, and this is Is That Science? A segment where I'll be looking at where and why the broader culture, such as the humanities or the creative arts, are influenced. This week, I want to talk about my personal interest in the history of medicine and use it to reflect on why I think the history of science as a whole has so much to offer in the modern day. So, if this sounds interesting, stay tuned. The inspiration for today's episode really came from last week, where I was listening to Harriet talk about the history of science as an academic discipline. And it really got me thinking, what did I find so interesting about the subject that I wanted to take it to university? So that's why I wanted to talk about it today. So, whilst slightly embarrassing to admit, my own interest in the subject was sparked by a slightly macabre interest in about the fascination of disease and its manifestations. One of my favourite books actually given to me by my dad is uh, Richard Barnett's A Sick Rose which features quote disease and the art of medical illustration. It brings together a collection of illustrations of various diseases and their sufferers from incredibly detailed renderings of cancers to the waning appearance of cholera patients and the gradual destruction of their organs. Now, I'm sure your primary concern is what a 15-year-old girl was doing, being interested in those kind of illustrations. But aside from terrifying my friends with the book's very vivid imagery, I really loved reading the book, particularly because of how Barnett contextualises these illustrations within a particular historical frame of reference. So obviously these drawings were not taken to scare the life out of a 15-year-old girl's friends. These drawings were incredibly important in conveying the relatively new practice of dissection that was happening around this time. These Victorian drawings represent a shift in how the diseased body and the sick, especially those of the poor, were perceived by physicians and the medical establishment. Barnett writes in the introduction, quote, Most of all, they instantiate a revolutionary concept of clinical authority, one rooted in the dead patient's body rather than the living patient's voice. End quote. And this really encapsulates my own fascination with the history of medicine and science, outside of the more gory and sensationalist aspect of it. These sources not only represent the contemporary understanding of science, but have a purpose in defining a specific cultural narrative about the role of medicine in society. In the book, Barnett advances a widely understood distinction in the history of science between the old versus the new practice of medicine that began in the late 18th and 19th century Europe. Gone was the archaic and outdated framework of humoral theory. This was the Age of Enlightenment, characterised by rationality and empiricism, and with it had to come a new way of conducting medicine and clinical research emanating primarily from the late 18th century Parisian hospitals with practitioners like, and I'm going to butcher this, so I'm very sorry in advance, Javier Bichat, an understanding was promulgated throughout the rest of Europe that disease was no longer considered a constitutional imbalance of humours, but a localised site of pathology, confirmed by dissection and qualitative research. But in this context, as I've talked about earlier, the patient voice was frequently ignored in the clinical setting in favour of a more prominent role of doctor scientists and pathologists. Compound this with the fact that the Parisian hospitals that perfected the techniques of dissection and qualitative research were typically hospitals for the poor. So there's often this element of classism where the working class were particularly regarded as pathological specimens to be dissected. Now, that may sound super harsh in the modern day, but what I really want to get across is that the care of the patient wasn't really the primary concern of the physician, especially when hospitals like the, and I'm going to butcher this again, so sorry in advance, Solpetre, were typically overrun and completely overpopulated by patients. To be clear, I am focusing on a very large period of history here, almost a century of research and discovery and context that I'm trying to sum up in a sentence. There's a particularly interesting article I've put in the show notes and it's by a Dr. Nicholas Stewson. And he has a hypothesis that there is a very strong influence of social context that defines cosmologies of medicine. So practices and understandings of medicine within this period. That diagnosis and disease cannot be separated from prevailing social values and the broader culture at large. I read this article in my first year and I absolutely loved it. It gave a lot of medical context for the things that I was really interested in at the time, like these drawings in this book. And Jusin's style is really captivating and interesting. What I do want to highlight is the importance of social context for constructing a historical narrative about the development of science. This, for me, is where the history of science becomes such an important discipline. At its core, history is all about giving context to events and theories. Therefore, critically engaging with science and medicine, as we do in the history of science, is about looking at the formulation of theories about disease and their place within a developing historical timeline. And I think this really chimes in with a point Amelia made last week about not pedestalizing modern science. If we simply privilege one understanding of science as wrong and another as right, we ignore the large grey area between the two opposing viewpoints and the historical context that gave rise to the ideas and practices and backed them up. Going back to my example of the methods arrived at by careful observation, dissection and microscoping analysis perfected in the 18th and 19th century Parisian hospitals. It would be very easy to laud its early pioneers like Javier Bichard or Jean-Martin Charcot. I remember when I first learned about this revolutionary practice, I was tempted to regard it as such. Yet this triumphalist narrative fails to recognise the shortcomings of the early understandings and practices of science. For example, as I've said earlier, the illustrations in The Sick Rose, as Barnett himself notes, completely objectify the patient as a biological specimen and violate their bodily autonomy, which modern clinical practice actively forbids. This is why it's so important to employ continual critical engagement when considering the historical timeline of scientific development. Additionally, John V. Pickstone, in the introduction to his book, Ways of Knowing, stresses avoiding what he calls, and I love this as a phrase, the scholarly sin of presentism. In other words, we should not look back on the past with modern values. Obviously, personal responses preclude any particularly effective critical analysis. But this framework also reminds us to look more into the social context surrounding a particular scientific development than to merely market at face value as revolutionary or archaic. For example, if we look back on humoral theory of medicine, the dominant understanding of human health in the early modern period in Europe, To the modern person, the principles seem skewed and obviously wrong. Of course, human health is not predicated on the balance of four constituent humours. Of course, your melancholic personality is not because of an excess of black bile. And blood definitely is not made in the liver. Yet, these matter-of-fact statements do not go to explain why humoral theory endured for the centuries that it did. And this is why, looking at the social and cultural history around science allows us to respond to that question. If we look at the cultural context in which these theories were solidified and perpetuated, we can understand why humoral theory lasted for as long as it did. One factor of many that explains its longevity was the validity granted to it by the Catholic authority. Adam Rodman points out that the four humors were so firmly entrenched in medicine and society at large, that denial of it was tantamount to heresy in the eyes of the Catholic church. So in this way, broader culture and science work in a kind of symbiosis and both of which you have to understand to contextualize scientific theories. So obviously up until this point, I've talked a lot about historical medical theories and practices and how they must be understood from a critical perspective because that's my particular area of interest in the history of science. But now I want to turn more broadly to why the discipline as a whole is so important in the modern day. And I think the best illustration of this is the climate sceptics and the vaccine sceptics. In the current culture, the increasingly vocal and furious climate scepticism threaten a precarious world. And whilst it would be so easy to mark these theories as wrong and dangerous, such blanket statements would really ignore the social and cultural history that gave rise to these theories in the first place and really alienate us from one another in a time when we should really be seeking unity. And that's why I think history of science is such an important discipline, because it teaches us to continually question orthodoxy and to not solely mark something as wrong and something as right. We have to look at the hidden complexities that can only be found through looking at the social and cultural history. Additionally, I also think that history of science is such an accessible subject and it also encourages people to feel engaged with scientific ideas without being alienated by scientific jargon. And this is why I love the subject because it allows me to engage with ideas that I'm not necessarily used to. It encourages people to be engaged in something that they may not particularly have access to. And this is why I wanted to start the podcast in the first place, because I wanted to look at how the humanities and the creative arts incorporate science and make it actually more accessible. So this has been a bit of a mini episode in my own personal area of interest and balancing it with critical analysis and engagement. But I hope I've really communicated just how interesting the field of history of science is as a discipline. So I've put a list of all of the books and texts that I've referred to in this episode in the show's notes. So go and check them out, as well as a link to Adam Rodman's podcast, Bedside Rounds, which I would encourage anyone who has an interest in the history of science to go and check out because it is really fascinating. So that's all from me this week in Is That Science? And over to Amelia next week. Thank you so much for listening.